Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those of us who worship them, all set against the heartwarming and uplifting backdrop of the end of the world. My name is Kit, a.k.a. Yolo Birder, and this week my special guest is Kerry Gardner, a nature-inspired artist and writer living in Devon who likes to dabble in a variety of crafts. Before becoming self-employed, she worked as an ecologist and prior to that was an environmental educator with the Dorset Wildlife Trust. She has contributed to the British Trust for Ornithology's book Red 67 and has written for Penguin, discussing the loss of biodiversity in the UK over the past 70 years. Welcome, Kerry. Hello, Kit. Hello, how are you today? I'm very well, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. I'm glad to be getting back on the podcast trail, but it's it's lovely to to meet you finally. Yeah, you too. I've been following you on Twitter and looking at your photos for many years now, and you also contributed to Red 67 by doing a lovely curl you. Yeah, yeah, it was great to be part of that project. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was amazing that uh, so many people, you know, were happy to to be part of it, and it's obviously led to the new book into the red which is which is really nice too so how are you enjoying the autumn so far looking at your twitter feed and your instagram you're out foraging and i've become completely obsessed with fungi i really <laughs> it's, it's it's awful it's basically all i think about all the time now is can i go and find some more mushrooms really <laughs> yeah it's really distracting me all, at all times um i went for a run this morning and on the way i stopped about three times because i found numerous fungi on the way it sort of snuck up, up on me over the years. I wasn't that interested in fungi a few years ago, but last year and this year, it's just kind of exploded. I love it. It's just great. And, I, and I've and i always had that kind of, I think it's a bit of a British thing that we're a bit scared of fungi. You know, you might pick the, a poisonous one and do yourself a disservice or end up in hospital or something. But I've actually found like, you know, there's quite a few edible species. And if you're really careful, there's some amazingly like, if you find like porcinis, they are just the nicest tasting things. So yeah, it's been like a, it's been great. But out kind of looking for um, porcinis, um, chanterelles. I found so many fly agarics this year as well. There seems I don't know if it's always this brilliant, but this year seems to be particularly good for fly agarics. They are everywhere you go. So you have these like lovely like little fairy toadstools everywhere. Yeah, it's brilliant. I'm loving it. I see fungi. I mean, I'm out walking the dog quite a lot, but I never see the sort of things that. The photos that people post and the ones, the fly garricks that you've been posting and and others, you know, they like you say, they're just kids' books sort of, you know, level of uh, toadstool. But, you know, it, I never see things like that in these great phallic looking things. Oh my gosh, I know some of them are so rude. <laughs> they're so rude. We found this, um, it's a type of puffball um, coming back from uh, having dinner at my partner's parents' house. And uh, it basically did look very, very phallic. It was, and I, I think I did tweet about that because I just, I didn't say much. I just put it there. I was like, yep, yeah. you can see what it looks like. It's so rude. But they're actually edible. They're an edible species, believe it or not. I didn't eat that one. Couldn't eat <laughs> <thing>, but... <laughs> No, I, I, I did see that photo. There's plenty of them around at this time of year for everyone to enjoy. Yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> The other thing I was going to ask you about, Kerry, before we get started on your five favourite birds, was a post that you'd blogged about a while ago about your swallows. We're really lucky where we live because we've got these barns where the swallows come back to every single year. And I always wait, you know, with anticipation, see what day they're going to arrive back. But um, I think it was not this summer, but last summer, um, we had one pair that raised the brood really late in the year. So when all the rest had gone back to Africa... This one pair was, I think it was October, was still raising their chicks. 
And so I was keeping an eye on them because I thought, you know, they're already kind of a bit behind and I want them to do well. And then uh, one day I was cooking dinner and I suddenly heard the parents going crazy. They were doing their alarm calls. And you know, when you, when you hear swallows, you sort of get used to what the alarm calls mean. And they were just going ballistic about something. And I thought, my gosh, what's out there? So I went out and um, to where their nest had been and looked up and there was no nest. And I thought, oh my God, oh God, what's happened? And then I flicked my eyes down and there was just this smashed nest on the floor and these four chicks just splayed across the floor of this barn. And I thought, oh my gosh oh gosh, I've got to do something. But that spring, because, because where the swallows will put their nest in the barns, um, they must be quite good places for a wren to anchor its nest. This wren had gone around and filled up loads of the swallow nests with its nests. <laughs> um, so I'd actually made, I'd made one out of clay to sort of add to this, to the, to make another vacant nest effectively. So when the swallows came back, they'd have a spare nest. They totally ignored it at the time. But when the, these swallows lost their nest, I thought, well, I've got a spare one. I've got this clay one. So we ran and got the clay one and we um, had to put it up in exactly the same spot where the original nest had been, because I'd been reading this book that said that sometimes birds will ignore their chicks if they've even been moved a small distance away. Yeah. And I thought, I don't want to risk them ignoring these poor babies. So we had to screw it back up again in exactly the same place and pick up all the chicks really carefully, pop them all back in again. And they carried on using the nest, which was brilliant. But then this spring, um, they came back and they started to put their nesting material in the clay nest. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what an honour. <laughs> They're using my nest this year. It's great. That's fabulous. I mean, it's an incredible story. And it, it's lovely to think that the birds that used that clay nest that you made, because it was ignored the previous year. So whether that was one of the, the parents or, or one of the, yeah. the four that you uh, rescued, it's a, it's a cracking story. I love that. And how did, they, how did they get on in the clay nest this year? They did fine. They've all done fine. They've actually had a really good year this year, the swallows. I think um, because it's been, well, it's so dry. They didn't have any of those horrible, cold, wet days. They couldn't really feed. They could seem to feed all the time. So yeah. Yeah, they've, been, they've done really well. It's, it's great that you managed to combine two things, obviously, your artistic side and your love of uh, nature and birds. And I love the fact as well that you can tell all the different alarm calls of the swallow. I don't get a lot of swallows around me, so I would be very sketchy as to what the different calls mean. But I think you've noticed which different predator it is, even by the way that they're calling. Absolutely. Yeah, they've got a very distinct one for hobbies because we get hobbies hunting over our house and there's a particular noise they only make for a hobby. Although weirdly, just occasionally when the swifts first arrive back, they make that same sound. And I think they might get it because because hobbies and swifts look quite similar, don't they, when they're far away? Yeah, I think almost they sometimes think maybe a swift could potentially be a hobby. But they've got different um, sounds for hobbies, uh, sparrowhawks, squirrels, magpies, jays, foxes. They've got a whole different range. And it's I see so much in our garden because of the swallows, because they make these sounds. And I think, oh, hobby, I run out. <laughs> oh, sparrowhawk, and I run out. You know, I get, I'm terrible. I, I'm trying to work and I get distracted. I get distracted all the time by nature. I'm like, the, <laughs> I'm the worst. I'm always like, oh, what's that? What's that? Um, but yeah, they've been there great. So when they leave, it's a bit sad because I, I haven't got their alarm calls anymore. I have to rely on other birds and I'm not quite so in tune with the other birds as I am the swallows, I don't think. I spent about 10 minutes under it. some trees yesterday. There was two blackbirds going absolutely nuts. All the smaller birds going absolutely crazy as well. You know, there was, there was great tits, there was chaffinches and, and sparrows, all just buzzing around this tree and I couldn't see what the, I'm guessing it was a rooster and owl uh, maybe or something, okay. but you know, it, I couldn't, I couldn't see what they were all going crazy at. 
there was some jackdaws at the top, but I don't think they were bothered by them. But yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing there was maybe a, a, a tawny in there or a long-eared owl, but yeah, it was it was it was frustrating. Yeah, I, I bet it was an owl too. They're very good at hiding in those situations, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure it was. Right. Well, enough about swallows. We need to get down to the nitty gritty, which is your five favourite bird species and the ones that you would wish to survive most of all an environmental disaster of gargantuan proportions a scenario that seems ever more likely sadly with every episode of this podcast i record so let's talk about your first choice bird number one 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 can i just say before we start it's so hard only picking five birds because there are so many cool birds in the world so this has been really tricky and i will say Need to just say I haven't picked a swift because I just figured everybody loves swifts, so that's just a given. So that's why I haven't mentioned swifts. So my first bird is the woodcock. I became really aware of them a few years ago when we used to have chickens. I used to let them free range everywhere, and it was getting on to the like late in the afternoon in I think it was November, and they were foraging around the back in a kind of glade sort of thing that's around the back of our house. And I went to check on them, and as I went round the corner of this barn that's there. I stepped forward and this thing just materialised out of the leaf litter. I don't know how else to describe it apart from it just seemed to just literally come out of thin air. It was like a flame. It, it lifted up and it was all kind of like rusty reds and coppers and chestnut colours. And it went right up in front of me, zigzagged through the hedgerow and was gone. And I just thought, whoa, 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 what was that? What was that? <laughs> but you know, like if you've been flicking through bird books a lot, you kind of have like a rough, you can kind of think to yourself, and it, your head goes, like, oh must have been a woodcock um so I ran inside and I pulled out all my bird books and I ordered more books about woodcock and I got the internet up because I kind of go into like hyper focus mode when I'm interested in something like that when it inspires me I have to know everything about it and I started reading about them and they are just the most fantastically weird birds do you know they've got their uh, their ears uh, below their eyes so on their cheeks effectively really yeah um so they can hear worms <laughs> they've got that whole kind of like little pincer thing on the end of their bills their eyes are so far back in their heads that they've pretty much got 360 vision apart from right in front of their faces. So they're quite prone to like smashing into things, unfortunately, because they can't see directly in front of them. They're a wader, but they don't really hang out with other wading birds. They hang out in the woods. They come out like they're crepuscular. So they come out when it's getting dark. Like there's just so many weird things about them. And they're beautiful. They are like the plumage. They've got this like cryptic plumage and they're just gorgeous. I think they're lovely. No, they are. And then they are weirdos. Like you say, you know, that, and actually you, you've picked a couple of weirdos on this list, which we'll come to in a minute. But I, I uh, accidentally flushed one this week while I was out birding. And I, I think obviously it's a time of year, isn't it? When they start the big sort of influx of them for, for winter time through October, don't you? And, and yeah, so it was, I was at the coast and it was early, very early morning. Though I was there for first light trying to look for rare warblers and I found nothing apart from almost stepping on a woodcock which was nice and i'm so i'm so thrilled you said you've nearly stepped on one because that means they must like you say the influx must be coming because we don't get them breeding around where i live we only get the winter ones overwintering near us so yeah. i have to wait for this time of year to see them and I, I love it i love like after nearly stepping on that woodcock i went out most of the time and it was a nice when it was a nice evening at dusk and i'd watch near the local woods and watch the woodcock come out to go and feed and they have a really weird way of flying as well i've got this kind of odd can't really describe it. It's not really very much like a bird. They kind of go all over the place before they land. Yeah. 
it's the way their beaks, you know, when they're roading, their, their, their beaks pointing down and such strange birds. And I think because you don't see them so often, it's another one of those ones that, that, that seem quite otherworldly. And one thing I just read about them, actually, that actually I didn't know is, you know, when we talk about like a fall of red wing or a, a big influx of any particular species actually comes from the description of that sort of big winter influx of woodcock. So it was first described in 1486 and it's the collective noun for woodcock, which I didn't know is a fall of woodcock. And then all of the other big influxes come from that. I think I've, I think I've read somewhere about it being a fall of woodcock, but I didn't know that I didn't know that's where it stemmed from all the other birds. That was that's new to yeah. me. Oh, did you um have you did you read anywhere about them being called surgeon birds as well? I think I have tell me about that. I think I have come across that once before. When I when I went on kind of my, my mass buying of Woodcock book, I did buy quite a few that were shooters version of Woodcocks, you know, their their stories as well. And they say that lots of the birds that have been shot have got these they're like a mud bandage on their legs. And it seems that when they get shot but not killed, they try and fix their wounds by placing like uh, mud, moss, feathers various other things around these injuries and it they do heal remarkably well underneath this little bandage that they make for themselves so they get called surgeon birds wow no i didn't know that i thought it was a, a i thought it was a reference to the to the probing a bit like sewing and i just wondered if that you oh, know yeah. the the rhythmic sort of probing of the ground you know whether whether that was like a surgical needle but ah no i didn't know that so they almost like put their own legs in plaster casts yeah, that's just it, like a plaster cast, like a mud plaster cast to try and fix their legs up, which is an incredible thing, really, when you think, you know, you they, they are able to do that. They're able to understand that, that will help, you know, and it does. I don't think it's just coincidence. I don't think it's just caked around the injury. It looks like it's been done on purpose. That's crazy. If that's true, that's brilliant. Yeah, no, I didn't yeah. know that. And the other thing about the um, uh, you, you've probably read this elsewhere. I've never seen it. I'd love to see it. But apparently the, the female birds carry their chicks when they feel threatened. Have you heard about that? I have. I, they, they talk about it between the tail and the legs, don't they? That they can pick, yeah. they can pick them up and fly with them. It, the jury is still out. Some people say they've seen it. Some people say that they they might have seen it. But, uh, you know, nobody's really sure whether it, it is just folklore or, or whether it actually does happen. But, you know, again, you, you don't hear about that with any other. They've got all these crazy things associated with them, haven't they? Yeah. Uh, and yet we still shoot them in massive numbers. Hey ho. Oh, don't even get me started. That makes me so, I just, yeah, madness. It's just madness. I think yeah. you've said before on this podcast, you can't tell if you're shooting a, a British bird or a migrant. So, you know, and they're red, the British birds are red listed. So it's not worth the risk. It's just not worth the risk. Yeah. And I think, you know, Wild Justice, which is Ruth Tinge, Chris Packham and Mark Avery's group, they, they fundraise, don't they, for a lot of sort of, legal challenges and things like that and what they've been pushing for i'm sure well i know you've seen it because you've shared it haven't you um but for listeners they've been pushing to shorten the shooting time of woodcock because the season opens on the first of october when the influx starts but what they've been saying is if we if we push it back to the first of december and give a couple of couple of months reprieve then less will die obviously but also you're less likely to shoot one of the native breeding birds i think is that is the theory a lot of estates and a lot of shooters choose not to shoot woodcock completely anyway which is great but it seems like a no-brainer doesn't it to extend that time if they're struggling as well the other thing is it, it is a delicacy and it is still eaten but in ye olden days, they used to, when they presented it, they would have all the entrails down the side as well. Like this was like a side garnish, you know? 
Well, I guess they're not getting wasted. That's, that's yeah. not wasting it. I had that way of like, um, didn't, I think they probably still do this where they, where they cook them, where they kind of fold the head back and pierce the beak through the leg or something, sort of present it all on the plate. Yeah. I mean, I don't eat meat anyway, so I'm, but even that, yeah, no. <laughs> no, no. I, I did read though that somewhere at times chefs have got it wrong and they instead of putting the entrails and the, the intestines out on the plate, they would use the, the contents of the intestines, i.e. all the worms, and they would put those on the plate instead. No, um, that must have been so crunchy. <laughs> Think about the grit. Think about how much grit there was. Oh no! Oh, Imagine trying to pretend that that was delicious. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Anyway, amazing, amazing birds. We're going to move on to your second choice. Bird number two. 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 Yeah. Can you see? I've got a bit of a thing about kind of like birds with foliage, foliage plumage. <laughs> um, I think for what for the reason I picked woodcock in the winter, then in the summer night jars have the same effect on me so it's a night jar that you just did the face of it i know i know, I know listeners can't 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 see your face, but that face is what they do that you just they're just the most enchanting they're wonderful things to watch just wonderful i think anybody who saw spring watch this year and saw chris packham's expression and his enthusiasm for this bird every time they showed he, he couldn't contain himself and i think they are one of those birds. We've talked about it on the podcast before with Nicola Chester and Lucy Lapwing, who both are big Nightjar fans as well. But yeah, I mean, it, top five bird for me with, without a shadow of a doubt, because they're almost not birds. They're just ridiculous. <laughs> I, I, I think almost not birds is quite good. They have this such a weird way of flying for a start. They've got that kind of thing where they put their wings in a V, turn their tail on an angle and they float. They just seem to just float. They don't, they hardly flap and they just, and they come, they have this kind of wonderful way of being completely enigmatic and yet extremely curious at the same time. So you can get really close to them because they want to check you out and yet you, they're still unknowable. It's such, yeah. such a lovely kind of, kind of place to be. It's brilliant. Um, and I think uh, I, I first, I first saw one years ago with my brother. Um, we'd seen something I think we've seen something on television with hankies or something, and you can call them over because they think it's the wingtips of another male, um, which was amazing. But I've since then realized you don't need anything like hankies. You just need to just be there and they'll come over and look at you because they're so curious. Like you just stand there and they'll, I've had them like floating all the way around me. Um, that my nearest patch, there's a, there was a male there that seemed more than happy to float around me and then go and sit above me in a tree and chirp. Just, just above me. It wasn't remotely fussed about me being there at all, and um, which was brilliant. But then this year, uh, my partner and I discovered somewhere that's fairly local to us, where they're just everywhere in the summer. Uh, he suggested going there, and he's not really into birding. So when he suggested, it, I thought, yes, please, you know, let's go. Um, and we went up there, and every single tree—I'm not even exaggerating—had a night jar in it. Oh. They flying everywhere they were kind of like chasing each other right past us they landed in front of us on the path so you could pretty much see their plumage even though it was getting dark just it was it's the most amazing place i've never experienced night jars like that in my whole life it was brilliant oh that is amazing i mean i i get some nearby me but nothing like that and some days i go and i don't see any some days i'll go and i'll hear them only some days i'll go and i'll get a little bit of a flight around but that sounds just ridiculous that you've had several all around you all at once putting on that, that kind of performance oh i'm jealous 
Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's brilliant. I really am very fortunate. Where I live, I must be in a place where I know I'm in a place that there's lots of um, nightjar areas around here. But that particular spot, it's just, it's superb. I took my mum up there, actually, at the end of the season because she'd never seen a nightjar before. And I was like, right, mum, just, just come with me. You've got to see this. And I took her through and they did the whole, even oh. if this was the end of August and they were still crazy. Oh, brilliant. And she was just like, oh, my God. And I was like, I know. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, no, that's it's when you take people to see like some sort of spectacle like that and they act and it actually comes off and you can rely on it. That's brilliant. Adding to their otherworldliness, isn't it? As along with the whole behavioral element of coming out at night and being a bit spooky and then the wing clapping and the cheering and all these things that they do that is very unusual in its own right. But then they apparently suckle goats just to add to the mystery that's such a mad it's such a mad legend isn't it that somebody managed to kind of see night jar near goats and sheep and thought they must be suckling them that was the first conclusion they came to it's just so balmy i know <laughs> rather than you know there's plenty of dung around so apparently i mean there's lots of different kinds of night jars and night hawks in the family there's 88 of them most of which are in the southern hemisphere but i did read a, an amazing fact which i don't know if you've Come across before but in france proto night jars have been unearthed dating to 40 million years ago which is 10 times earlier than humankind oh my gosh that's incredible i had i didn't know that at all that's amazing see they've just been like part of the dusk for so long haven't they like that is amazing yeah they could well be our overlords and we should all be worshipping them and i for one would be at the front of that queue yeah, I'll be next year. I'm completely down with that. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> they're great. But then obviously, like like a lot of birds of the night time, you know, they've got the, the omens of bad luck, the whole goat sucker thing, and that they'll kill your cattle and your goats. I read that in Costa Rica, there's an old story that people used to grind their bones into cigarettes to give to people they wanted to kill. Smoking the bones of a, a night jar is deadly. There you go. I'm sure there's easier ways, but... How do you make that leap? If I take this bird and I grind its bones and I put that into a cigarette, I can kill somebody. Ha, ha, wow. <laughs> it's quite bizarre. Yeah, like, like a lot of birds in Africa, they're omens of bad luck, aren't they? If you if you kill one or harm them. So so yeah, there's a lot of a, a lot of sort of folklore and mythology about the the night jar, which just makes them all the more interesting and amazing. I think. Let's move on to bird number three. Which, again, I don't know if this is an accident or not, but this is another bird of bad luck. So the link follows through. So tell us about your third choice. Bird number three. three, three. <laughs> My third choice is a tawny owl. It was very difficult to try and think of a bird of prey or owl and just pick the one because I do love all birds of prey very much, um, as I know you do too. Yep. So, yeah. So I've, I've chosen tawny owl because I just have such a soft spot for them, really. Even if they're birds of bad luck, I think they're, I don't think of them as bad luck. I just think they are, they are the sound of the night. They yeah. are the sound of the night. Yeah, yeah. they are. And, and I think the bad luck thing is, is very much sort of owls in general, isn't it? And it's, you know, the way that they were talked about for centuries, really. But then over the years, we would have grown up reading stories about cute owls and clever owls and all of these kind of things. So... So they're getting associated with cuddly toys and kids' books and stuff like that. That's possibly gone too far the other way, hasn't it? You know, I think I don't think they. I wouldn't ever call them cuddly. You, know, <laughs> that you get these these stories about people who've got too close to their nests and they do attack people. So you know, it's, they're not they're not cuddly. But 
sadly I've actually found two dead tawny owls this year uh, one of them was hit by a car and the other one was a local bird that had, it had a ring on it and it turned out to be 15 years old so it did have quite quite a good life yeah. but the thing about seeing them when they're dead is you get to see them up so close and yeah have you ever seen their feet up close no oh they're just oh I couldn't take my eyes off of their feet they're they're almost feline they and they have these incredible talons on the end ever so sharp and all this fluff and they're just the most amazing feet and then you kind of get to the feathers and you look at the feathers and they've got that serrated edge so they've got a silent flight and this like velvety upper part I presume so when the feathers rub together they don't make a sound or something um all those beautiful colors that make them look like tree bark and then these eyes these eyes that are like obsidian or like, I don't know how to describe them they're just like almost like alien eyes they're just you know they're just such beautiful beautiful things there was a few years ago that little place where I nearly trod on the woodcock I heard about four o'clock in the afternoon a tawny owl calling from there and I was working but as I've said easily distracted so I thought oh why is there a tawny owl calling at four o'clock in the afternoon so I went around there and I looked and I couldn't see any owls anywhere I saw a jay and it was doing a dead ringer of a tawny owl call yeah. and I thought I see your game I can do that too so I did the thing where you cut your hands together and do like a hoot to it to mimic it and as I did as just as I finished this thing landed behind me and it was a tawny owl it, landed, <laughs> it was right there and it actually looked angry and it really did look like I'd annoyed it by pretending to be an owl and then its mate landed next to it and I was like oh my goodness me um I'm guessing that maybe the the jay was trying to mimic the owls to make them leave the vicinity because it was pretending to be a bigger owl or something like that I don't really know but that same jay also did a really good um imitation of a buzzard so it must have for some reason been mimicking these birds but yeah it's just amazing because I kept it practically landed on my shoulder I just had this owl there that is, that is crazy as well just like you say coming along and looking cheesed off because like there's a, another bird that isn't an owl and a human and they're <laughs> like you know trying to talk owl like what are you guys doing come on <laughs> what are you playing at yeah it was um and you know you said earlier about um how you know there's an owl about because of the blackbirds and the other birds all making a real noise yeah um that happens quite a lot near where we live and i very rarely see an owl i know it's there but it's tucked away in the ivy or the holly or something and you i look and look and i can't see it but i think it was not last last year or the year before i was gardening and i heard all these blackbirds start doing that whole ping 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 thing they do and i thought there's an owl in here somewhere um and i looked and we had some young owls in the garden at that point because the local pair had had these three babies uh, so it was a juvenile and it sat itself in an apple tree but i don't think it had learned how they how it has to tuck up next to the trunk to be camouflaged so it was just sat in a really obvious position and it was right there and i thought oh and it stayed long enough for me to be able to run back to the house to grab a camera and then get back out and photograph it. And it was just the most beautiful creature. I can't even put into words how gorgeous it was. It was so beautiful. Amazing birds. We I get them around me as well. And, and I love hearing them. You know, it makes you feel like, I mean, I'm not far from the city here as well, but makes you feel like, oh, you are quite rural when you can hear an owl. Yeah, yeah, and, and they've moved into cities too, haven't they? Which is, which is this amazing thing about them. They've and they apparently will even pinch people's goldfish. <laughs> oh, really? I haven't heard that. Yeah, apparently, yeah. Um, you have to admire a bird that's that like behaves that way. And I was just thinking, like, there's quite a few things can wake me up at night that will annoy me, like a rat chewing in the walls. It's a very old house I live in, so you get, that's annoying at two o'clock in the morning. Or someone on a motorbike on the main road nearby at two o'clock in the morning. It's really annoying. 
But if an owl wakes me up, I never ever mind that. I always yeah. think it's a really, it's like a um it's almost like a gift to get woken up by a tawny owl. I just love it. Yeah, amazing, amazing creatures. Right, let's move on to another symbol of death. We're going to keep the chain going on. There's a link between all these birds, I think, almost. So tell us about bird number four. Okay, so my fourth choice. I almost didn't pick a corvid because I hate to pick just one individual one, but I thought I can't not pick a corvid. So I'm going to have to have one. And if I really think about it, I shouldn't really have a favourite, but I do. It's the raven. I think it's everybody's favourite, isn't it? I mean, a few people have chosen Raven being on, on this podcast. We've had a jackdaw, but nobody's picked a jay, a magpie or a, or a carrion crow. But we've had, we've had a few people uh, who are Raven enthusiasts because there's a, there's a lot to unpick with Ravens, isn't there? Mm, there really is. I think they've been so present in human history for such a long time, haven't they? They're just, they've been there when we were hunters on the battlefields, in our cities, They've just been there and we've, I guess, because of that whole the meeting carrion thing, people have always associated them with going between the worlds, haven't they? Between life and death or being messengers of the gods. Yeah. Um, and also, obviously they're, they're large, dark coloured birds, so they do have this kind of presence about them too. Yeah. I think there's certain birds that people would know a robin, people would probably know maybe a magpie or a heron. But I think a raven, you know, most people, because of the, I guess, the Tower of London, they're iconic even to people who don't love birds, I think. Yeah, absolutely. They, they just have such a presence about them. When We've got some that fly over our house sometimes, and when they come over, you can hear their wing beats. You hear that noise. And then they you know, do that, that croak sound, which is almost like, it almost just, it's like the sound of the mountains or of a wild place, isn't it? Um, and I always think they're kind of, almost the nearest thing I'll get to seeing a dragon in the UK. That's what they make me think of, like these great big, you know, like a mythical beast flying over. I just, and then they sometimes do that thing where they play and they roll around on the wind. And yeah, I just, I love them. I used to live on Anglesey up in North Wales. And when I lived there, I didn't know this at the time, and I don't know if it still is the largest raven roost in the world, but I was right by Newborough Forest. And at one point that was the largest raven roost in the world. Birds would come over from Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Yellow Man, all to congregate in this one place. And I lived in this static caravan and they used to fly over and the sounds they made, they, they, they definitely got a language, absolutely got their own language. I mean, I, I couldn't decipher it. I wish I could, but they, all these different things that they used to go over every single day and like talk to each other. And I think, what are they saying? I know you're saying something, but I can't understand it. Yeah, amazing. No, they are. And, and it's that sort of playfulness, isn't it? I've seen them on the telly, you know, sledging on the snow and just just having a, a right old laugh. And then there's the, the obviously the, the thing like you're talking about the, the vocalizations and the language and, you know, they can be taught to speak that it's stupidly intelligent birds. It, it's not within the realms of impossibility that they do have actually some sort of language that they, they talk to each other rather than just help, danger, you know, food. Maybe they are going, <laughs> this is good laugh, isn't it? I think it? they do, I really do, because they are so intelligent. They, they're as intelligent as the great apes. You know, then there's, there's really nothing stupid about them. Um, and they've been proven to kind of, you know, they'll actually gesture to each other with their beaks. So they, like, if I was to point, it's the same sort of thing. Or they can delay gratification. They can work out puzzles. They make, they make toys. You know, they play. I know a lot of people on your podcast are the sort of people that collect dead animals. I'm no different. 
And if something gets killed on the main road near our house, I tend to bring it up to the local field so that other things can eat it. Because otherwise it's just a waste. I don't want to get it to get wasted there. So I you know, bring it up and um, I've carted up a few things. Like the biggest thing I've ever carted up over the years was a roe deer in a wheelbarrow. I kind of got it. <laughs> I couldn't just leave it there to get wasted. So I was like, right, taking the wheelbarrow. Um, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but we had a pair of ravens nesting in a pine tree quite near to our house. And I thought, well, they could do with some extra food because they're nesting. And there was a fox that had been killed down on the road. So I went down and got the fox and I put it fairly near their nest and I left a camera trap next to it and they wouldn't go near it. They wouldn't go anywhere near that carcass while there was a camera trap there. And I tried the same sort of thing before with rabbits up another field with a camera trap and buzzards come down, no problem at all. Buzzards are happy to just come down and chow down with a camera trap right in their face, not bust. Ravens, however, in order to make that any of them come down, of that pair, I had to move the fox and put the camera trap right the way back in this hedgerow and really hide it. And even then, when one did finally come down to feed on the fox, it started to feed on the eye of the fox. I know everyone finds that gross, but it's the soft part, it makes sense. Um, and it did it for a little bit and then it stopped and it clocked the camera trap and you can see it, it, it looks directly at it and it does that thing where it like, they, you know birds like cock their heads from side to side. I think it's because they've got like long vision and short vision or something. So they have to, you know, to get a good image, they have to go both ways. And it hops right up to the camera trap and it really, really looks at it. Where I live, unfortunately, they do get, corvids do get shot and trapped. So I suppose it needs to be safe. It needs to make sure it's not going to get injured. You know, and I, when I got the camera trap back in and I watched that through, I thought, gosh, aren't they? They're just incredible. Like the buzzard wasn't like that, but the raven was. That's really clever, isn't it? And yeah. they maybe watched you bringing it and putting it there and thinking it could be poisoned, it could be dodgy, yeah. whatever. And that's, yeah, it's amazing. They're fantastic birds. And I remember last time we talked about them on the podcast, somebody on Twitter had pointed out that they, they've learned to call wolves, a pack of wolves, to where deer are so that the wolves will get the deer and they'll get the, the leftovers. They're clever, aren't they? Amazing. Very clever. Amazing creatures. There's, there's a reason that they're, I guess, that they're, they've become the stuff of legends and they're much storied because, you know, they're just, they're just amazing birds. Let's move on. Um, we could talk about ravens all day, I think, but we won't. We'll go on to your fifth and final choice, bird number five. Bird number five. Okay, bird number five is a wren. Uh, I couldn't not have a wren on my list because I just adore wrens so much. And I kind of think of myself as a bit of a troglodyte. And because they're called troglodytes, troglodytes also, it's almost like my, <laughs> my spirit bird. <laughs> um, I really admire wrens. I really find, I love the fact that they're such a small thing and yet they're so full of life. You know, when they sing, it's, it seems almost impossible that such a vastly loud sound come out of that tiny little thing um and i love the fact that they just carry on they seem completely unfazed by people you know they'll scuttle underneath your legs or underneath the table where you might be sat um i've had them have dust baths right by my feet before and they don't seem to be even remotely annoyed about me being there they'll put their nests in really prominent positions sometimes you know they're, they're renowned for nesting in like really dark places aren't they but We've got a cellar and they always nest above the cellar door and it doesn't matter how many times you go in and out, they seem perfectly happy to be there. Or they stick their nest like in the ivy at eye level so you can see all the little babies hanging out, you know. Quite an amazing thing that such a small bird can just carry on like that without being frightened of us. You have, I have to admire that about them. 
Yeah, they're just plucky little things and they're larger than life. You know, the fact that they make so much noise, they're always there. They're pretty much everywhere, aren't they? Despite being named after cave dwellers, you know, they, they're pretty ubiquitous wherever you go. But yeah, they're fantastic little birds. And one thing you said earlier when you were talking about the swallows and you mentioned the wrens filling in the, the swallows' nests, but they make more than one nest, don't they? The male will go around, and I think on average, is it six, five or six, and then escort the lady around the properties. Which one would you like? Yeah. And I wonder if that's what they were doing. It was Maybe it was one male filling in all your swallows' nests. I think so. I think it was a very overzealous. <laughs> he pretty much blocked up every single one with his little nest on top of the, the swallow's cup. Obviously, he's allowed to do that, and it's brilliant that he's doing it, but I felt a bit worried for the swallows because I thought, you know, they have they have also got to have a nest to come back to, you know, and they are struggling more so than wrens. But yeah, he did. He just, you know, I think any available little nook or cranny or swallow nest, and he was like, right, that's for me. I can see what you mean because the, the swallows have obviously spent time building that nest and he's filling, filling them in, and they might not even get used. Those ones might remain unrented, exactly. you know. <laughs> Have you ever have you ever watched one when it's uh, when it hunts and feeds on something like a spider? No, no, don't think so. I'm always amazed that people kind of have this. Often people sort of divide birds into good birds and bad birds, and the yeah. bad birds are things that you know tend to be larger birds that prey on things like songbirds, which are the good birds. But if you ever watch a wren with its prey, it is brutal. <laughs> absolutely brutal if you do not want to be a spider in a wren's beak they thrash them around and throw them on the floor and it's <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's just the same as like a a bigger like a sparrowhawk i suppose with a pigeon really but it's just on a smaller scale but for some reason that seems okay but when it's the sparrowhawk people get a bit funny about it it's just the same thing playing out at a smaller scale yeah, yeah. i'd love to see that now yeah, Ren Spider Smackdown. Yeah, I want a bit of that. Do you know about the whole um, them being called King of the Birds? Uh, there's so, I don't know where it originates. It might be kind of like a Celtic um, legend. I'm not sure. But uh, the Wren is known as the King of the Birds because the birds all decided they had to have a contest to see who was going to be their king. And whoever would, could fly the highest would be the winner of that contest. And they all fly up. And the eagle ends up being the one that flies the highest. But as it's just about to announce that it's the winner and the king, a little wren pops out of its feathers and flies a bit higher and says, I am king. And the king and it ends up being the king of the birds. But that, that in, the, in the legend, they say that's why the bird skulks around, because even though it's the king, the other birds were a bit annoyed at it for becoming a king in a bit of a twisting of the rules kind of way. So that's why they when they sing, you can tell they're a little king. But when the rest of the time, they've got a skulk. Keep out of the <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story right so you've chosen your oh no actually before we before we finish up i have got da, da, da. <laughs> i've got a zero punches pulled question for you zero punches pulled for those who haven't listened before the zero punches pulled is a play on the peregrine's claws like the golden grenades and it's probably a question that the guest will hopefully have never been asked before and possibly will never be asked again. So my question for you, Kerry, is would you rather have the dietary habits of a woodcock and have to source all of your food with, from the ground with your nose or those of the raven and largely live off dead stuff that you find lying around? I haven't ever been asked that before. <laughs> and I doubt it will ever again. You're quite right. Um, oh, oh I, I think I might. Oh, I'm going to go Raven, I think. 
Only because I don't like the idea of having to completely eat crunchy things like worms that come out of the ground the entire time. It's the crunchy bit that's getting me, the kind of gritty, crunchy thing. Whereas at least if you're a raven, okay, you have to eat dead things, but you could be a bit more discerning, I'd hope. You know, you could pick things that weren't going to be all gritty. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I suppose that from a raven's point of view, when when you're foraging, you get to see a great big vista. Whereas from a woodcock's point of view, you're down in the mud, aren't you? You don't get to see so far. So yeah, I think raven just about, although it is quite fun to think of yourself as foraging like a woodcock or a, a wild boar with your nose in the ground. <laughs> Back on the old <laughs> truffle, that'd be good. <laughs> I think you've alluded well. You've suggested that you've got a bit of both actually earlier because of your foraging habits with your fungi and your mushrooms. And mm-hmm. obviously you're, you're scooping up dead stuff to put in your wheelbarrow. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, not, not too ridiculous a question for you after all. It's been absolutely great talking to you today. At the end of this, you know, you have to choose one of these five birds, the one bird that will be your spirit guide, the demon on your shoulder, the the bird that will accompany you through the desolate wasteland of the environmental Armageddon. So which of the five birds would you choose to be your companion? such a difficult question but because they're so intelligent i'm going to go raven probably find all sorts of food for you as well so handy in more ways than one brilliant all right then kerry thank you so much for coming on golden grenades today it's been great talking to you thank you so much for having me it was a real pleasure thank you well folks that's all for now i hope you enjoyed the episode do check kerry out on her social media accounts on twitter as kerry doodles if you want to see lots of phallic-looking fungi and some beautiful artwork. Do join me next time when my special guest will be conservationist and musician Brian Briggs. Until then, bye for now.